Hello, I am your host, Joshua Kaufman, and this is Bourbon and Battles. Specifically, this is the introduction to Bourbon and Battles as a means of telling you who I am, explaining what I'm doing, and why I'm doing it. As for the why, that's easy. I love a good story. I love history. That idea that whatever road you're traveling down as an individual, nation, as a society, that that road was probably traveled down before by someone else. And in a way, the names and the dates and locations may change, but through a story, you can pull back that veil of time and connect through to these things that make us human. Emotions like anger and despair, sadness, hate, hope, joy, and love. And maybe through this, you can gain some perspective on your own life or on current events as they stand. And perspective can be a powerful tool. Now, this is not going to be a historical shame fest where I berate all of us because our lives are so much easier. I'm not here to shame us for how good, relatively to some of these people in the story, how good we have it. And specifically telling those stories of battles in American history. So what I'll do in every episode, I'll review a bourbon for about five minutes and then describe as best I can a battle in American history. Now, I don't want you to think of this as a classroom. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a historian. Just think of it as your historical nerdy friend and you're sitting around the campfire with me telling stories or hanging out at a bar. First, Let's start with the bourbon aspect of this podcast. And I want to cover some bourbon basics here. So question number one, why bourbon, not scotch, vodka, tequila? Other than my own personal obsession with it, it's because it's distinctively American. Now the history here is clouded a bit in legend. There were several people uh, working on distilleries and things that we would come to know as bourbon in the same area around the same time and there are a lot of individuals that have been credited for it or take credit for it Uh, a lot of these are tied to some of the major distilleries here in the U.S. that they take a little piece of that pie to make their claim well Fred Minnick he is a writer commentator on all things bourbon and whiskey and to give you some perspective of who he is if you were creating a new bourbon and wanted someone to try it and tell the whole world that it was good. He is your man. In the book that he wrote, Bourbon, The Rise and Fall and Rebirth of an American Whiskey, he says it was probably a man named Jacob Spears. He was a Revolutionary War vet that moved to Bourbon County, Kentucky around 1790 and set up a distillery. Does it get more American than that? Well, in fact, it does. And how do I know this? Because Congress says so. In 1964, through an act and negotiated into trade deals, bourbon is distinctly an American product. You can make bourbon what amounts to bourbon in other countries, but you can't put bourbon on the label, which always brings up the question, okay, so what is a bourbon? Well, number one, it's it's not just made in Kentucky, although that's where a majority of the bourbon is made. Bourbon is a subset of whiskey. I like to tell people that all bourbons are whiskeys, but not all whiskeys are bourbons. It's the same way as saying all Big 12 teams play college football, but not all college football teams play in the Big 12. (laughs) 
Yes, I'm even including you, Kansas. Now, beyond my lame attempt to pretend that normal college football is starting, let's look at the specifics. So the TTB, which is the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, is part of the Department of the Treasury. And they approve all these new bottle designs, but their website will define bourbon as well. It is a whiskey distilled to no more than 160 proof from a fermented mash bill that's at least 51% corn. You can't put it into the barrel to age at more than 125 proof, and these barrels have to be charred new oak barrels. And it cannot be bottled at less than 80 proof. And if you don't know what proof is, it's double the percentage of alcohol in the whiskey. So uh, 40% alcohol, that gets you an 80 proof whiskey, the bare minimum. They also say any bourbon that is less than four years old must have an age statement on the bottle. Sometimes this is in years, two years old, three years old. Sometimes it's in months, 24 months, 36 months, but it must be stated on the bottle. And to gain the title of a straight bourbon, it has to be at least two years old, no color or flavoring added, and aged in that charred new oak barrel. It can earn that title. They're not required to put straight bourbon on the bottle, although many do. Another thing about this age statement, if you're going to have a bourbon that's a blend of several bourbons of different ages, you have to state the youngest bourbon in that bottle. And what that does, it keeps nefarious producers from filling a bottle with, let's say, 80% bourbon that's four years old and then filling the remainder, remaining 20% with a 20-year-old bourbon slapping a 20-year-old age statement on that bottle along with a price tag to match. Now, we'll actually review some American Rise as well, which have the exact same requirements, but instead of the recipe required to be 51% corn, it will have to be at least 51% rye. Rye whiskeys are some of the first whiskeys produced in America, but bourbon, rye, and battle doesn't sound quite as good. Now, I also want to go over how it's made. Just give you a 30,000-foot overview. Again, in those long and ever-growing list of things that I'm not, I'm not a chemist. But let's just take a look at how it's made. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to select your grains. Again, if you're producing a bourbon, 51% corn. Most other bourbons, that remainder will be either rye or wheat as a secondary ingredient, with barley as the final ingredient. You're going to grind those up, add that water from those wonderful Kentucky or Tennessee limestone springs that do such a good job of filtering out impurities like iron that, that could make the whiskey bitter. You're going to cook these grains, and then you're going to add yeast. And these yeast strains, these are top, top industry secrets for these distilleries. Some of them, maybe all of them, I'm not sure, have patents for these yeast strains, these distilleries, some of them have strains of yeast that predate prohibition. Yes, that's right. These giant distilleries that were up and running prior to prohibition, when they got the word that they had to shut down, some of the lucky ones got to continue to make whiskey under the guise of medicinal whiskey. Some had to switch to other products, but those that did, they kept these strains alive in the hopes that one day prohibition would go away. Now, after this yeast is added, these are in giant 
usually open air tank, sometimes uh, steel, sometimes cypress wood. And this yeast, what it does is it consumes the sugar from these grains and it releases two things, alcohol and CO2. And this is what's called the distiller's beer. And at these distilleries, when you take the tour, some of them will actually tell you, why don't you dip your finger in it and taste it, which is a, whoa, pump the brakes. Did you really just say that moment? But yeah, you can dip your finger in there. First of all, it looks like it's boiling because the CO2 is coming up in little bubbles. It's actually not. You dip your finger in it and it tastes like someone poured beer over your oatmeal. It usually sits in these tanks for about three days before it goes through the still. And what comes out of the still is moonshine. It's also called white lightning or white dog. That is the liquid that is going into those barrels. Again, to be a bourbon, charred new oak barrels. And what I mean by new is they can't have anything else aged in them before. Scotch, on the other hand, a ton of distilleries in Scotland will get their barrels from American bourbon producers. You can do that with scotch. You can't do that with bourbon. Now, after they fill these barrels, they place them in the rickhouse, which are tall, multi-floor, wood and metal, usually, warehouses to age. And let me tell you, I've been in a lot of these. It is the best smell in the world. And the bourbon is breathing as as it is heated up and gets cool. It's expanding and contracting in this barrel. And it's losing some to the air in what's called the angel's share. And it just makes these rickhouses smell amazing. Now that is my 30,000 foot overview of how bourbon is made. The Science Channel on YouTube has a How It's Made Bourbon. It's a quick five minute video. It shows the Maker's Mark distillery and the process they go through to make bourbon. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. I also want to go over some terms that you hear in the industry. Single barrel bourbon. Inside that bottle is bourbon pulled from a single barrel. Now you also have the term small batch, which is a blend of a small number of barrels. So these distilleries will pull a small batch, which there's not any clearly defined term of how small that batch has to be, 20, 30, maybe 100 barrels, I don't even know, and they'll blend that together in small batches. You could hear the term barrel-proof, uncut, or cast strength. That is bourbon. That literally, when it's done aging, they pour it out of the barrel, and it goes through just a basic bare minimum straining system to filter out any bits of char or wood that are floating in the liquid and they bottle it. They add no water to it. So those barrel proofs, bourbons, tend to be very high in proof, usually 110 to all the way up to sometimes 140 proof. You have bottled and bond. This is a term that came from the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897, which really was a win-win for the government and producers in terms of taxes and also for consumers in terms of getting a safe and quality product. When you see that today, that signifies, just as it did then, that the bourbon is at minimum four years old, it's exactly 100 proof, and was aged in a federally bonded warehouse under government supervision. Now, there are also bottle and bond rise and bottle and bond corn whiskeys. And while back then it was a sign of, this stuff won't make you go blind, we promise you it's good, today, bottled in bond, sets the bar for quality meets value, at least in my opinion. 
they're usually in the $20 to $30 range. And I've never had a bottled and bond bourbon or rye that I've hated. Non-chill filtered. So chill filtering is a process that most whiskeys undergo. They chill the product after it comes out of the barrel to the point where it causes these fatty acids and the proteins to clump together enough so they can be strained off and filtered. Now what this does, it keeps the whiskey from getting hazy in the bottle. Or when people make mixed drinks out of it, cocktails, what have you, keeps it from getting cloudy. Gives you that nice clear whiskey. Now most producers have brands that are non-chilled filtered because a lot of bourbon drinkers notice a much different change in the flavor profile when it is non-chill filtered. I know those are some of my favorite bourbons because I feel like you lose a bit of, of that feel. Uh, something that can make a bourbon taste oily or buttery. Just that nice thick syrupy coating uh, when you chill filter it. Now mash bill. We already hit on this a little bit. That's just your recipe and ratio for the grains that make up that whiskey. You may hear the term high rye or low rye. Remember 51% is what makes a bourbon but that second ingredient in most bourbons is rye. Now several distilleries have brands that follow different mash bills and they usually take a high rye or a low rye recipe and they have separate brands. And for me what that can do is it could help you narrow down your taste profile as to what you like. If you were to tell me at a, you were at a bar and you had a rye and you loved it and you wanted to get into bourbon and you got a bottle of Jim Beam single barrel and you didn't like it. I would offer if you still wanted to go down that bourbon route, maybe try Jim Beam's high rye bourbon line, Old Granddad. There are also things called weeders or a weeded bourbon. That's just where instead of that second ingredient being rye, it is replaced with wheat. NAS, that stands for no age statement. And remember on whiskeys older than four years, they don't have to put an age statement. Some do, but not always. A finished bourbon or a finished rye. So this refers to a relatively new phenomenon in the whiskey world, which I happen to like. Producers taking their whiskey and finishing them the final six months or a year in a different barrel that held another type of liquor. So a very common one is wine. Port barrels are a big one. Also, some distillers have been getting into rum as well. Now, as far as the bourbon and rye that I'll review. So I'm a middle-class guy, and I believe in all my heart that bourbon was, is, and should be the drink of the common man and woman. Just in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a bourbon revival. Tons of different brands on the market. Producers are trying some new things, some good, some bad. And it's a bit of a double-edged sword because some brands have got on the hype train and taking that price tag with them. People flip bourbon. There's a huge black market for them, usually selling them at many, many times the suggested retail price. People look for certain bourbons for years and never find them. So that said, we won't be reviewing any rare or high-priced bourbon or rice. So if you're someone that's familiar with bourbon and you're, and you're sitting on this huge war chest of rare bourbons, that's fine. Go ahead and drink those if you just want to join me for talking about battles. But if you're new to bourbon, don't stress about it. 
I'm not going to ask you to go out and drop $200 on a bottle. I will be selecting bourbon and rice that, number one, I enjoy and purchase all the time. And number two, ones that I believe can be found throughout America, usually in the $20 to $40 range. And I think that takes care of the bourbon aspect. So to transition to the battles. So why battles? Why American battles? I've always been interested in military history. I remember I got hooked on those old, excellent History Channel documentaries in the 90s. I collected micro machines and tanks and planes and set up huge set piece battles on the floor in my room when I was little. I had two grandfathers that served in the military, one Army and one Air Force. So given all that, along with watching 9-11 happen as a kid, I guess you could say I went into the family business. I was a journalism major on an ROTC scholarship in college, and I commissioned into the U.S. Army. And at that point, reading became much more professional. I looked for parallels that would make me a better soldier and leader, and I was just fascinated with how little the daily life of an American soldier has changed throughout time. As far as the process of how I'm putting these battles and the description together, I'm really limited by two factors, money and time. I know we all are. But specifically how it applies to this podcast, I can't spend a bunch of money on books for every single one. Once I've selected a battle, I'll exhaust all the free resources out there. Typically, I'll purchase one to three modern histories of that battle. And then I use these books. They're great to point me in the right direction as far as primary sources. So letters, decrees, laws, newspapers that I can find online and read exactly what those people there at the time were saying. Which leads me to the second factor, time. I have a day job. I'm a parent just like most of you. I'm pretty much limited to what I can read and take notes on every day after the kids go to bed. I can't promise you that I'll exhaust every source and go down every historical rabbit hole because then I would just be releasing one of these every year, and I really want to produce them faster than that. Finally, again, I'm not a historian, but I believe my career in the Army has some value here. And I can't stress this enough, the combat I saw is nothing compared to some of the battles we're going to be talking about here. But I know what it feels like to be afraid for my life and the lives of my soldiers, and I think I understand military leadership. Now, I won't be playing armchair general here. Don't worry, you're not going to get an hour of me wringing my hands saying, I would have done this and I would have done that and I would have and I would have won this battle. I'm not General Patton. But I do hope my experience will bring insight to some of these incredible stories. So where do we sit now? Well, episode one is a wrap. I've got a nice big bow on it, ready for it to launch. And with our first battle, our bourbon to accompany it will be Buffalo Trace. So I look forward to seeing y'all there, and I will be happy to drink with you all. Mm-hmm.